This morning, um, I'm going to reflect on a little bit on the first and second foundations of mindfulness. So you've probably figured that this week we're kind of covering some classical basics of um, insight practice. One of the things that makes this uh, teaching of the Buddha so radical is that he's pointing to uh, a practice that is a study of the phenomena that are arising right here and now. He's not making metaphysical speculations. He's not teaching us a practice to fix ourselves. The Dharma is not here to fix you. The Dharma is here to reveal what is actually already true, but that we can't see because we're kind of living in the overlays around what is actually evident when we train the heart and mind to get here first, to arrive to land, and to start to investigate and see what is really true here. So the Dharma is not here to fix you, and you probably all know that. You've probably heard it all before. But it's one thing to know it, and it's another thing to see where we're actually bringing that attitude into our practice, that actually we do want to fix ourselves. And of course we have a goal, and of course we have an orientation, and a love of what's possible, but this is very different than the orientation to want to fix myself. So I just highlight this a little bit, because it's something we need to see again and again when we're bringing that orientation into our practice. Because it actually is the default. The default for our ordinary mind is, okay, yes, there's suffering. I'm interested in the end of suffering. Right, something's got to change. I've got to fix myself here. The only way the mind can conceive it is to make something happen, is to kind of get it together in another way. Because the trust and the faith that it takes to keep coming back to write this, to, to this moment, to study this phenomena, this sensation, this mind state, this step as it touches the earth, this touch of the door handle as I open it, this love, this distress, this boredom, this pain, it kind of doesn't necessarily make sense to our ordinary mind's conception because we think there really is going to be a better moment. Just further along the way there, in the future, some way, somewhere else. I saw a thing the other day, uh, read something from William James, where he said, human beings are characterized, well, human beings are in a ceaseless frenzy, characterized by always believing we should be somewhere else. A ceaseless frenzy characterized by always believing we should be somewhere else. We should be doing something else. 
So as you know, it takes some steadiness to stop with what's right here. And that's what gets cultivated in these first days and actually always in our practice. We can always gather the power of mind to stop and give attention to what is here. And at times seeing the difference between where we have, where there is enough faith in that moment to give ourselves fully to what's here and when there is that attitude of needing to fix and change and we kind of move out of ourself, have a goal in the future and what's happening in that moment is that we're rejecting what is here. We're actually rejecting ourselves in a certain way. So to keep landing back with this and that's where the faith we may not feel like we have a lot of faith to start with but that's where the faith deepens the more and more we come back to this investigate and to see it is not what we first thought it was at first appearance and our faith deepens and grows and our love of what is possible ignites more and more So the second foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of feeling. Feeling in this case is a back-to-basics feeling. It's the sensate quality of whether an experience in this moment is pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Probably all of you have heard this teaching before. Probably all of you have worked with this teaching to some degree. But what would it be to bring the beginner's mind to mindfulness of Vedana, which is the, the Pali, for this feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. What would it be to begin bring a beginner's mind to this because actually we have to we have to if we want to know something differently we have to relate to it in such a way that we're not already assuming we know okay this is unpleasant right From the point of view of insight practice, the Buddha says, know the feeling as feeling, know unpleasant as unpleasant, know pleasant as pleasant, and know neither pleasant nor unpleasant as, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And it sounds so dry on one level, doesn't it? It's kind of it's very technical. It's very it's very precise also. And it's very radical. The potential for liberation right at this juncture. Because what happens when we aren't right here with our life as it emerges? If it's unpleasant, which it is sometimes, right? Unpleasant bodily sensation, unpleasant mental formation. 
I don't need to tell you that things can be unpleasant sometimes. If we aren't aware, if our attention hasn't sunk deep enough to really, oh yeah, it's like this, then right in that very moment, the momentum of wanting to fix, the momentum of believing there's a better moment, the momentum of the promise of samsara, of just out there, a little bit further along, when this unpleasant sensation goes. And what happens in that moment, we um, cling for something else, we push this away, and right in that moment is born the, the, the suffering of separation, actually. Right in that moment is born the sense of where this uh, self constructs and believes herself to be separate, isolated, deficient. It's right there that the world gets born from the, the sensation to the way that our momentum starts to cling, to push away, and then off we go, building our mind-made worlds. What happens when I say that? Sometimes it can induce a kind of panic. Oh my God, does that mean I have to be there for every time something's unpleasant? But maybe we can hear that that too is, again, that's the fear arising. The fear of, oh, I'm never going to be able to do this. It requires much too much from me. Can we see that too? And that what may be arising here and now is something hard to bear. One of the beautiful things about this phenomenological study that the Buddha is pointing to is that it's always arising here and now. Phenomena, well, they don't arise anywhere else, right? Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral arises here and now. So if we have found ourselves fabricating a mind world already this morning of, oh my goodness, Veda and I never got this teaching and now it sounds like I have to get this to do anything. To realize in this moment, oh, something feels hard to bear. Oh, there's a, there's a panic here. Can I bring it right back to the sensation of the pressure in the body? The tightening in the belly. Maybe the, the, either the disconnect, maybe it's like, oh God, Vedana, forget it. I don't do this teaching. Right? We might space out and disconnect. Can we know that? Can we, in a way, have the kindness to ourself to really sense what is going on right now? Because here is where the doorway of something new happening is. Here is the doorway. From the point of view of insight practice, the instruction with the Vedana is to see it in its arising and see it in its passing.
with unpleasant, with neutral sensation, with pleasant sensation. Can we bring that beginner's mind to the Vedana in such a way that we see it as it is, without adding, without rejecting? And maybe you can, maybe you know, and maybe you can sense from the um, simplicity of that teaching that it is quite radical, actually, to be here for a moment without doing anything with it. A lot of our practice, actually, is seeing where we get really busy with our mind. We're trying to manipulate this and squeeze this and have a bit more of this and push that away and dream for a better mind state and what happened to that insight I had two years ago to see the layers of where we're busy with this moment is part of our practice and slowly slowly as we get more here we can start to investigate that actually what's arising here on one level is pleasant unpleasant or neutral And here is a doorway of liberation, actually. It's not at all a dry doorway. Although to our mind that might like a little bit more glamour, it doesn't seem to offer us much. But there's a a potential here that is far from dry, but does require that stepping toward experience that takes courage, actually, especially when it's difficult. So this is for both our formal sitting and walking practice and it is for those informal moments when we're walking in the corridors, we're doing our washing up, we're putting our socks on in the morning. This teaching is always relevant. Very often those experiences are quite neutral. They're not pulling us because they're lovely and they're not, or difficult, and we're not busy with them, but they're kind of ordinary, kind of ordinary. And because and when our mind isn't trained to value this as a doorway of liberation, ordinary, it doesn't offer me much, you know, I don't have to, nothing I can get my teeth into, nothing I have to work with, Um, I'm not working on my purification or whatever it might be. It's quite ordinary. Ordinarily, our mind disconnects because it doesn't offer me much. We get a little bit distant from experience. A kind of gap emerges that's a little cloudy or, hmm, yeah, let's see what more interesting things there are to do here. Maybe I could do a more interesting practice. We're looking for interest in the future. Those moments where we disconnect from what is neutral are actually little flags that say, get closer. 
get closer, get closer to what you think is dull and boring. Because actually what you're calling dull and boring is yourself in that moment. It's your experience, it's what you have. It's, it's actually all we have in this moment. Can I come closer to sense what is neutral in the body, perhaps? Nothing's painful, nothing's lovely. Learning how to draw closer, learning how to be intimate with what is neutral, with what doesn't shout so loud. Valuing that, even if we don't know what the value is yet. Feeling it in the body. Sensing the texture throughout the body that is almost like there's nothing going on at first. It may seem there's nothing here. How are you with those moments that appear like nothing much? Where do you go in those moments where I pay attention and nothing much is happening? If someone were to ask you, you'd say, oh, nothing much. When we lived in a... And again, this is a very, very common default for the untrained mind. Because then all of us are in a process of training the mind. Because the, the depth of dharma, of the mystery of things, is, is vast. So as the mind learns to train more, we get more and more of a sensitivity for what appears neutral. Can we show up at this doorway? When um, Yana and I were living in a retreat center in North America a uh, long time ago, 16 years ago in Massachusetts, uh, at a sister center to this one called IMS, and there was a, one of the staff members had a little daughter who was three, and in that very adorable three-ish energy, she was busy with the world, you know, investigating and running around. And her phrase at the time was, what's next? What's next? She'd come up to someone and say, what's next? Always, you know, that promise, the promise of that what's next will be, do you know that? The promise of what's next <laughs> will hold out something for us. And at the time, being zealous Buddhists, and I decided to, you know, she came up to him one day and said, what's next? And he said, what's now? And she said, nothing. What's next? Right? Nothing. It's, it's, the, it's how it appears at first. And in Dharma practice, we, yes, we learn to attend to the lovely and the difficult. Of course. But these vast swathes of territory where it looks like nothing, can we learn, can we, maybe we can intuit, or maybe at first we just hear from the teacher. Hang out there, come closer, get to know it, see where it takes you. So from the point of view of loving the depth and what's possible, we have, we, this is a big part of our life. And from the point of view of our life, outside of sitting practice, do you want to keep missing that? 
Do you want to keep postponing, waiting for it to be something that is obvious to work with? We have enough obvious things to work with at times. And when it's not obvious, I, you can probably hear the enthusiasm. There's a lot to see here. If we're interested in, in stillness, in peace, in depth, in <coughs> going beyond what we already know. Call this talk in praise of the neutral, right? In praise of the neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Get to know it. It's your life, actually. And with the pleasure, there actually is a lot of pleasure to be known, spiritual pleasure. Don't worry if it hasn't shown up yet. You're only a few days into this retreat, and it's not the orientation of insight practice to um, to uh, use the pleasure as a vehicle. From the point of view of insight practice, we can um, really benefit as we deepen in the ease or the joy or the stillness or the calm as a vehicle for investigation. But we don't want to be too quick to just... Say, oh, it's pleasure, right. That too is passing. That too is anicca. That too is not self. I can't, mustn't cling to this either. It's true. The pleasure is not the end goal. The pleasure is not liberation. The pleasure is not our true home. However, the pleasure is a really wholesome and beneficial phenomenon in our practice of deepening, when it arises. So in our insight practice, when there are states, bodily states, that are full of ease, ease is usually pleasurable. Joy is pleasurable. Spaciousness is pleasurable. Can you really let yourself come into relationship with the pleasure that isn't clinging, but that really lets it be here as a wholesome nourishment for deepening. It changes in its own time. We don't have to anicca it out of the way. Right? It's a skillful, wise relationship with spiritual pleasure that we can learn. When it arises, we can't... um, We'll know if we're clinging to it. We'll see that. But that doesn't need to make us pleasure-averse. This will sound very strange to some of you who aren't pleasure-averse. But some personality tendencies, particularly more aversive types of personality, those of us that are a little more inclined to kind of be aversive, <coughs> anyone recognize that tendency? The, the, the tendency that is a little bit more sharp, a little more harsh, a little bit more, right, okay. We can also have the tendency to, right, okay, pleasure isn't the whole truth, and kind of push it away. There's a skill to really relaxing in that, really having it, letting it nourish us. It's very wholesome. Those of us who are more greedy and cling to pleasure, you'll see when that happens. Right? You'll see. We can learn there at that edge too. It's 
If you're doing orienting to samadhi practice this month, the instruction is different and you'll be able to work with those instructions with your teacher. Where the pleasure, even if we're doing samadhi practice, of course, doesn't mean we get pleasure. We have to deal with our, our own share of the difficult and the neutral, of course. And as we deepen in samadhi, there is territory of, that appears neutral that is actually a big part of the, of the map. So with Vedana, this is the feeling tone of experience, and every experience has one, is to know it as it is, to see that this too arises and vanishes, actually. It's not something we can find our home in, in the end. Even though the, ve- the, the pleasure, the wholesome spiritual pleasure, can be used as a vehicle, it's not our home. So to see that when we cling to the sensation, it suffers. This is the insight teachings. To really get up close and see, wow, yeah, I can't even, I can't even make home in this sublime um, presence. <coughs> to see that the sensation too comes according to conditions and passes according to conditions. It's completely contingent. So that's a little bit to remind you about the second foundation of mindfulness. as a little advert for the second foundation. Kind of know this, hang out here, get to know it. And then I go back a little bit to the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of body. So from the sutta, the, the Satipatthana sutta, the foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha starts with mindfulness of body, with mindfulness of breathing. I, I imagine you're all very familiar with that teaching as a vehicle for arriving and as a vehicle for seeing phenomena as they are. Because the breath too, when we deepen with it, is a teacher. The breath isn't just for concentration, it's the breath is here to actually reveal the characteristics of impermanence, of, of the futility of clinging, of the pain of believing that I have to do this world. We see it's not self. And we can see that deeper and deeper and deeper as we let the tides of the breath impress themselves moment to moment in consciousness. The breath is in the body. So mindfulness of body, the, the, the pith of it, because there's actually a lot of teaching around mindfulness of body, the pith, as I understand it, is where the Buddha says, to know 
body as body. And again, at first hearing, it's like, it's very, it's almost not enough for us to bite. To know body as body does not mean just cognitive knowing. Because of course, each of you can look at yourself and say, yeah, I know it's a body. And then you've done it, right? Finished. This knowing that the Buddha is talking about is not just It's not cognitive, actually. It's a knowing, the kind of knowing that is absolutely immediate. When we think about our body and even cognize it with a concept like my body, my sore knee, my diminishing health, whatever it is that we're um, cognizing, some of those things may be true, but they're already one step abstracted from the immediacy. The kind of knowing that is immediate is when we're taking a step on our walking meditation path and there's no gap between that foot touching the earth and the knowing of it. It's not here I am walking and yet here's my foot touching. It's It's closer to us than our breath. The knowing is more primary, more close, more intimate, more fundamental than anything we do with our mind and experience. One analogy the Buddha gives is um, closer or more obvious than color is to a person with good sight. Right right now, if you let your eyes open a little bit, focus on something, <coughs> if you settle back into your eyes without kind of searching, but settle back, and there aren't a lot of dramatic colours in here. Right? We kind of go for the neutral a bit, don't we, in Theravadan settings. It's kind of nothing, you know, to grab you. But let the colour come to you. You can see that it's known. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to say, oh, it's green. You will. The mind will do that. That's fine. But in the immediacy, it's simply known. And it's almost too close to us. We almost, it's too obvious. We skip over and get busy. It's this kind of knowing body as body where we're right up with it, with the sensation that is difficult, that is lovely, that is neutral, where the foot touches the earth, where the breath is just the breath. And we'll see in our practice all the degrees we start abstracting from that, where we start thinking about the breath and we start observing the breath, but it's different. It's not, it's a little bit abstracted. And we'll get the moments where we're completely immediate. We'll know them. They'll stand out to us in the beginning as moments of, oh yeah, I'm really here. I'm not mediating my experience through ideas about it. Sure, the ideas will come, that's not a problem. But that what is more primary 
is this knowing that is unmediated, it's clear. So knowing body as body, when we're in a moment of this immediacy, we see that all our ideas about it, all of our concepts, all of our angst about its health or its aging or its sickness or its dying, we can make room for the feelings, the, 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 the mindfulness of mind states and emotions. We'll get to, I think Rob's going to cover that. But we can also come to the immediacy of body where our knowing of it is very fresh, is very new, where we're not coming to, yeah, I've been with this knee pain for 20 years in practice, and probably you've all got those things, right? Whatever they are, physical or emotional. And that we start to meet with the beginner's mind, the sigh of resignation of, oh God, I know this, might come and go. And we're willing to step into the fire with the difficult. And feel it on the level of the elements, of the burning, of the tingling, of the piercing, of the stabbing, of the, the knottedness. And as we learn to meet that, that which knows this, that which meets that, the awareness of that, when we meet that unconditionally, something new. Not what we expect, because what we normally want when it's difficult is that it all goes away and I never have any more difficult sensation. That's the fixing mentality. But the willingness to be, um, to be surprised and to, to understand things that aren't on our agenda to understand... I'm going to read you a story. Some of you have heard this from me many times because it, it because I love it. It's from one of my teachers, Ajahn Sachito, and he's working right at this place of mindfulness of body. And it's from almost 20 years ago. And he's an abbot of the Chithurst Monastery in Sussex, Hampshire border. So he says, many years ago, I had this particular pain in my right shoulder. I would sit. Pain, I would think. Be with the pain. That'll do it. Here I am being with the pain. Being with the pain. It's not working. Maybe I need to do some yoga. Ah, that's better. Oh no, back again. Cushion, one cushion, two cushions, three cushions, four cushions. Angle the cushions to the left. Angle the cushions to the right. Doctor, you've got to help me. Chiropractor, osteopath. For five years I had this pain. I had an extremely active and ingenious mind at trying every possible way to wriggle out of the fact (coughs) that pain hurts and I don't like it. A very obvious truth, yet I hadn't actually come to that except what one glosses over in a few words, I don't like pain. Instead... I had acted on, I don't like pain. I hadn't actually examined the experience of not liking pain. I tried to think, well, you should like pain. Pain is good for you. 
or pain is bad, make it go away. But I hadn't really looked into, I do not like. One day, sitting in meditation, I thought, this is it, the showdown. I'm going to sit here for five hours and I'm going to get over this thing. Pain, pain, wriggle, wriggle. Why did I say that? Why five hours? After all, what about the middle way? Hours go by. Two hours. Three hours. Three hours and one minute. After about four hours, I was so sick of this pain. My mind had been through all the various circuits of be nice to it, be friendly with it, kill it. And it came back to, oh God, this pain. And finally the mind just rested. It got tired out, I guess. Eventually, ignorance does get tired after a while and it has to take a break from being ignorant. And instead of ignoring it and repressing it, actually began to open to it. Without the agenda, this is my little brackets here, agenda which experienced meditators might get, which is let's open to it and make it go away. Can you hear, can you hear the aversion in that? Let's open to it and make it go away. Or let's open to it and that will make me go into some kind of cosmic space. But just, oh, all right, here it is. Then I began to see this sensation throbbing away. And it began to appear in my mind as a kind of glowing light, throbbing, tearing, a tearing experience. And then because of the choiceless attention to it, I began to notice, well... There's that. And then there's this terrible kind of no, no feeling going on. Anyone had that? No. Ah, resistance. Then with that, a whole lot of bitterness toward the body. Bitterness toward pain. Oh, pain, I don't like it. It shouldn't happen to me. What did I do? I'm sitting here trying to be peaceful. Go away and this kind of moaning mind. As I contemplated my relationship to this sensation, it became clear to me that there was nothing I could do with the sensation, but I could stop beating it with my mind. I began to have this experience of deep regret for all the beatings and kickings that this mind had imposed upon life, upon this body, upon itself, upon its thoughts, telling it to shut up, telling it to be this way. And I felt like this whole system was like some mangy dog that had never really been loved and had just been told what to do and beaten. And in fact, this vision arose in my mind of this kind of dog, a kind of mangy, hungry wolf looking at me saying, how long are you going to keep beating me for? I felt this sense of deep regret that there should be so much intolerance and hardness toward life. In my mind's eye, something in me reached out to this creature and started to pat it and to say, please forgive me. Then this creature turned into a cartoon dog and we were dancing. Me and this pain. Me and the pain and then the whole thing just exploded very gently and the pain disappeared. It seemed to say, thank you, finally. I've been knocking on your door for five years. Thank you for opening. 
Thank you for recognizing that the problem was, I do not like, I will not accept, I will not open to you. And once you open, the lesson has been learned. And that's not to say that all pain responds in that way. But what it does suggest is that in coming really close, we start to see the difference. Again, the very classical teaching from the Buddha, the difference between the arising of sensation and what the mind does with it. As two um, uncoupled phenomena the sensation and what the mind does with it. We can start to uncouple that. Because very often it's the sensation and what the mind does with it and they're married and then off we go. And nothing new can happen. So I'll finish with two quotes for you. Because there's a lot to these teachings, but what it's really important to remember is to keep it really simple. Right? You can hear a teaching like this and think, okay, now I have to pay attention to the Vedna and the body. And, you know, it becomes a big agenda. It's very simple because what we can and what we're only asked to do is to come to this. When we remember, however long we've been lost, half a day, two hours, doesn't matter. In the moment that it's, oh yeah, I'm at Guy House, that's right. Okay, I'm on retreat, okay. Right, what's here? And that much we can do. We don't have to give ourselves a hard time for how long we've been lost. It's in the moment that you wake up that we're asked to keep it really simple. It's just this, actually. And these are two pieces that help us remind us that it's very simple. One is actually from Rumi, I believe, and he says, again, talking about the body, he says, you are the truth from head to toe. What more do you need to know? You are the truth from head to toe. What more do you need to know? Ah, okay, I can work with that. Right, that what we need to know is here, actually. We, what we're doing with practice is refining the tools and the capacity and the, uh, yeah, the tools and the capacity to recognize more and more of what's actually true. <coughs> and this is from Ajahn Chah, the great Thai forest master, also known for his simplicity in practice, his directness and simplicity. And this little piece is called The Simple Path. Of course it's very complex at times. You know, we, we tend to have a tendency toward complexity, but we only have to deal with just one moment that we're awake in. He says, Traditionally, the Eightfold Path is taught with eight steps such as right understanding, right speech, right concentration, and so forth. But the true path, he says, is within us. 
Two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, a tongue and a body. These eight doors are our entire path and the mind is the one that walks the path. Know these doors, examine them and all the dharmas will be revealed. The heart of the path is so simple. No need for long explanations. Give up clinging to love and hate. Just rest with things as they are. That is all I do in my own practice. Do not try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything. Do not be a meditator. Do not become enlightened. When you sit, let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing, resist nothing. Of course, there are dozens of meditation techniques to develop samadhi and many kinds of vipassana. But it all comes back to this. Let it be. Step over here where it is cool, out of the battle. Why not give it a try? Do you dare? Let's sit for a moment together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.